Welcome back, guys. This podcast is brought to you by RPG Coffee Company, a veteran-owned and operated socially responsible coffee company born to support members of the military, law enforcement, and firefighting communities by donating 50% of their profits. The true secret to living is giving. And don't forget to join the RPG Coffee Club today. Don't wait until you run out. Stay ready to rock by having RPG Coffee delivered straight to your door each month with our coffee club. All right, folks, thank you again for tuning in to another episode of Bucks of America podcast. This episode, I brought back my good friend Ryan Nordahl from Epic Whitetail Habitats, and he wants to talk about some stuff to prepare your mindset for the upcoming spring in this thaw. And the nice thing is today is just a fantastic day here in Wisconsin, here in Pigeon Falls, and it's just 40 degrees outside, it's sunny, it's bright. Things are talking and moving. It's great to hear. So, Ryan, why don't we go ahead and give us a, another real introduction? Because it's been a while since you've been on the podcast, and I think it, I think the, the listeners should get another um, crack at what you what you have to say. Thank you, Jeff. Yep, I am Ryan Nordahl with Epic Whitetail Habitat here, Osseo, Wisconsin is my address. But yes, from the Pigeon Falls area in Wisconsin, West Central Wisconsin. I started my business back in 2017. I started to really collaborate in my own mind with the idea. By 2018, I was up and rolling, had clients under my belt that uh, I was ready to visit. And what I do is I help clients set up their properties, improve the habitat on their properties to attract and hold more whitetail deer on their property. With the improvements that I suggest for people, it benefits all wildlife that occupy their land. So we're not just setting it up for white-tailed deer and to hold every white-tailed deer on the property from their neighbors or anything like that. That's not what it's about. But it's creating a hunting opportunity for a landowner that flows to have more more successful hunt. It's not about killing deer. It's about just seeing more deer, seeing more wildlife, and having it attractive enough to hold that deer. Maybe it's a specific deer you're after. No matter what your goals are with your property, it's to waste that that deer's time on your property during daylight hours while you're actively hunting in a low-impact, high-odds approach. I like how you put it. It's like you want to to improve the habitat all around because now you can open the doors for small game, and which is something that it's it's tough to hold because it's like you don't have the right food or water, you're going to run yourself into some scenarios. What got you into, what drove you to being an arborist, I guess you'd say? What really got me into it is just my absolute drive and passion for the white-tailed deer. I was introduced at a young age, six years old, back in 1984, by my father to the world of hunting, specifically white-tailed deer. I went with him on the first day of bow season that year. I'll never forget it. In my own mind, I can still see where I was that entire day, especially that evening hunt. I remember seeing six different bucks that night, and my old dad or my old man actually arrowing a buck that night. That was the coolest thing ever that I'd ever seen in my life. And we got to go track the deer. We actually ended up tracking that deer until midnight that night. Kind of made a a bad shot, but it was still fatal. More of a liver shot than anything. I was hooked from there. And I've been in love with the white-tailed deer habitat ever since. What really got me into white-tail habitat is a gentleman by the name of Jeff Sturgis. A couple of friends of mine from down in Madison, Wisconsin area have some property not too far from here that uh, brought Jeff to their property back in 2013. Now, Jeff is, he's known throughout the United States for the same type of business that I offer. He does a phenomenal job and I met him that day, spent the entire day with him. I just took the lessons that he taught my friends that day and myself back to my own property and began immediately to implement his ideas to my own property and learned how to fit everything in my property the way it's set up uniquely. Pretty soon, some family started coming around that would hunt with me and they'd see it. They own land of their own and they'd see the improvements and see what was going on as far as flow and the number of deer that they were seeing. Now, it's not a guarantee, but it does benefit the deer. Mm-hmm. Not everything is a guarantee. Not everything is perfect. They saw for themselves the experience they were experiencing on a land that or on a property that was set up right correctly with that low impact hunting pressure 
versus their own and started to see everything come into fruition. And pretty soon they were inviting me to their properties to help them set up, come up with strategies, whatever it was. And I did it for family and friends for nothing. I never thought anything of it, you know. I was a dairy farmer at the time. Then I got out of dairy farming for various reasons. Went from job to job with that mind always playing that I can do this as a business. But like anybody else, waiting for the money to be right. Just waiting for the timing to be right. And in 2017, on August 8th, that morning, I jumped in my pickup truck to go to work. And I just thought, you know, I've got all this stuff, all the wires and everything to hook up to my truck. And I'm going to play a YouTube video. And I just plugged in goal setting. I'd never really set a tangible goal in my life. Mm -hmm. Something to shoot toward. And I just plugged in goal setting. And up came Brian Tracy. He's known in the personal development world specifically for goal setting. And as the algorithm and YouTube started picking up the things I was listening to, a gentleman by the name of Bob Proctor come up. And now I don't want to lead this into a big personal development spiel or anything like that. But he got me to think in a way that if I don't go after my dream right now where I stand, that I'll probably never end up doing it. And I don't suggest anybody go after their dream the way I did, mm-hmm. where I just basically quit everything and started building my business from scratch with not much money in my bank account at the time. I don't suggest anybody do that, but it was a risk I was willing to take, and I'd done it. And we're going into our third year with this, our fourth season, third year, and I couldn't be more blessed and grateful mm-hmm. for the clients that I've the list of clients that I've built in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, Michigan, Kentucky, and I'll even have the opportunity to get out to Vermont this year. That's impressive because the last time we spoke, reaching out to, to uh, Michigan, now you got out to Kentucky, and now all the way to Vermont. That is in Vermont, right? It's yep. Yes, okay. Yep. That's just impressive. You know, it's like, but you, what you're, by studying with, with your goals, like that is exactly what you need to do when you're thinking about your upcoming habitat, but even personally, too. Like mm-hmm. when I started this, when I was one like four years ago, when I first started buying the equipment, it's like, I didn't know what to do either. And it's like, I just, I just bought the equipment, then I just sat on it for a couple of years, and then all of a sudden, it's like, I started paying attention to uh, several friends of mine, like Bruce Hutchins from the Whitetail Rendezvous, and then uh, Joe Rogan, and yep. and uh, Stacey Astronaut, which I'm wearing a shirt right now, yep. and it's just, just going after it, and then just, and it's like, it's amazing when you put your mind to it, that everything just kind of comes in the fold, and now it's like, I, I've had some really good conversations, like my last one with Chad Anderson, that was a fun one, because... He went out and did this fantastic, really competitive catfishing tournament down in Texacoma, and it had 293 teams. The payout was 46000 for first place, wow. one of the highest paying tournaments to, to date for catfish. I mean, that's just like, who would have ever thought 10, 15 years ago that catfish would be such a sought-after thing? And it was a very challenging event for him, but it's just getting into that whole goal, goal and mindset about what's going on, because right now, we are right at the end of February, going into March, and it's like now it's like the time to actually like I like going out and doing any of my work during February and March because it's not too hot outside. But the other thing is like if you get out there on a nice day about like 20, 25 degrees where you walk on the snow and you're not stepping in mud, that's really cool where it comes down, especially if you need to bring out heavy equipment, everything's still frozen. Yes. That's where you need to take advantage of that property out in uh, Minnesota, Austin, Minnesota that I, dr- I drove driven by here last weekend. Mm-hmm. And when I saw it, they, it's like there's a whole crew of guy out, guys out there with heavy machinery cutting stuff down. Looks like somebody bought some property back there and looking to trim it all out and put a house in there. But it's like it's genius to do all the heavy lifting now. And it's like I'm watching these guys pull out these massive logs and stuff like that. And just within 48 hours of uh, me going down to Iowa and coming back through, it's like they, they just went to town. They had a crew of six, six to 12 guys, depending on what was going on mm-hmm. and they just really put their mind to it and got it done now when you are since since we're getting into that stage what is your mind first when you're coming out to a property in this in this type of season right now with the snow still on the ground and things are starting to warm up i guess one of the first things that i look at is just cover for deer okay and the amount of browse that's available to deer this time of year especially up here in the midwest in any northern states where we get a lot of snow and scarcity of food becomes a real prevalent thing in the whitetail world. And all the animals, you know, wildlife that depend on food to get them through the winter. Yes. And uh, I see so many properties 
where you basically say it's a 40 acre property where you walk into that woods, say it's a, an old growth forest, meaning there's a high canopy, not a lot of sunlight gets to the forest floor, especially in the summertime during the growing season. This time of year with the snow and everything, you can literally stand on one end of the property and see clear to the other end. And if I'm in a northern state and there's snow on the ground, there isn't a trek of a deer or just about anything on their property. Okay. Especially deer. And why is that? There's nothing there to hold them there, especially when it comes to food. And, you know, I've, I deal with a lot of people that have the old mindset. We still have the baby boomer generation that grew up in the time of the big deer drives. And we, this day and age, that doesn't happen anymore. Everybody's so worried about if you get hurt on my land. We can't make the big drives like we used to. So now it's you're down to your property. We live in a high-pressure area here in Wisconsin and a lot of the upper Midwest. Very high-pressure hunting states. Michigan is terrible as far as hunting pressure goes. But at the same time, what can we do to attract and hold more deer to our property? Number one is there's three things that a deer needs. Food, water, and cover. And they all go hand in hand. You can have the best food plots in the entire neighborhood and still not have deer come to your property. They might come at night, you know, depending on your hunting pressure. How much are you hunting your property? Are you getting out there any chance you get after work? Now, anybody who owns property, you can do whatever you want with your property. If your goal is to kill a mature buck on your property and you know he's there, you've got him pegged, you know, whatever it is, but you check your trail cameras and he's showing up, you know, yeah, early in the season, he's showing up early and everything else. And you go in there, you don't see him on your first few sets, but you know, he's in there. And all of a sudden he starts showing up later and later and later at night and people just write it off. He's nocturnal. There's no such thing as a nocturnal deer. Deer eat five times a day. Mm -hmm. That's true. And two of those times, three of the times are during daylight hours. Two of those times are within their bedding areas somewhere during the day, and they're up and eating two times a day in their bedding areas. Where are they bedding? Are they bedding on your property? Chances are probably not if you're overpressuring your property. And when it's wide open, now, yes, early in the season, you've got all that vegetation, forbs, grasses, whatever, that offers some cover. They offer some food benefit. Nettles is, you know, stinging nettles is a great whitetail food. Lamb's quarters. You start getting into the later into the fall, those plants and forbs and everything die. They fall to the forest floor, and now you've got a wide open property again. So those deer, if you don't have stem count, we all know that deer like the thickest, bushiest place that they can get into and hide whatever. Well, if your property sets up like mine with a high ridge through the center of it, or however it sets up, and those deer are up above, you've got this big, high open canopy. And the understory is nothing but a monoculture. They can see you coming in, whether you think they can or not. They can see you come in. They can smell you, whatever. And the more often you hunt, the more you're conditioning those deer that occupy your property to your presence. They're tracking you just as much as you're trying to track them down. The way I set up properties is is in a low-impact manner. And I tell guys, if you want to shoot the biggest buck in the neighborhood, which is Basically, everybody's goal, yes. whether they'll admit it or not, mm -hmm. everybody's goal is to shoot the 30-pointer, the and uh, you got to get your hunting strategy in check, too. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm just here to make suggestions. And, you know, when it comes to food, you can have the greatest food plots in the world, but a deer's diet still needs woody browse. And I see a lot of properties that don't have woody browse opportunities, especially as we get into this time of year. What is a Woody's brow? Woody, woody brows is buds on trees, basically. And, you know, if there's not a lot of underbrush under this high canopy, mature forest, you know, it can't get any sunlight down and you're not getting that new growth, that regeneration. What's one of the best ways to do that if you've got, you know, a significant amount of acreage that's forest? Well, one of the first things you can do is probably think about a selective cut. Now, I'm not a forester by any means, and I'm not real educated yet on how to approach, say, a select cut or if a clear cut is is um, 
the recommended thing. I always recommend any of my clients to seek out their county forester for the best recommendation on that. Say it's a property that I walk into that recently, within the last five or 10 years, had a select or clear cut done. What are some other things that we can do? One of the first things is, again, deer need that woody browse. It's vital to them. One of the best things that I've found, now it's not for every property. Not every property that I visit, I recommend this to. I would say probably mm, 30 or anywhere from 30 to maybe 50% of the properties I visit, I recommend hinge cutting. And hinge cutting isn't necessarily for bedding areas at all either, but it does allow more browse instantly to hit the forest floor. Now, I'm not taking out big mature trees that could be utilized for logging and put money in your pocket. That's mm-hmm. not what I'm doing. And I'll never suggest that. And the other thing I'll never suggest is just any Tom, Dick, and Harry go out there and start hinge cutting trees. You've got to know what you're doing because it is a dangerous process. Mm-hmm. And if you are if you have a sliver of doubt when it comes to the practice of hinge cutting, somebody that knows how to do it. I have experience. We're not out there taking. The biggest trees I'll take, every once in a while I'll take a bigger tree, but it all depends on the situation. But the maximum tree size that I'm hinge cutting is about eight inches. That's the maximum I'll go. For the diameter of it? For the diameter of it. It takes the danger out of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we see we see it glamorized on YouTube or other social media platforms quite a bit, especially where these guys are making these high hinge cuts, usually head high. I'm a tall guy, six foot three. And I know other guys that'll go out there, same height as me, and they'll make that cut or even as high as they can reach. Because they think, when it comes to hinge cutting, that we have to have this high canopy that deer can get under. And that's just not true. Now, it is true to a point. There's a lot of argument over this by a couple in the industry, and it is what it is. In my own experience, deer do seek out a canopy during certain weather events, whether it be a heavy rain, heavy snow event, whatever it is. But a deer is usually seeking out more side cover than they are canopy cover. That's exactly true. I came across a, a, a nice buck uh, bed last fall and it's like I just well, I saw a nice scat and I started, I started walking back for it. It's like I'm looking for a spot to strategically put a camera on it because it's like, well, there's, I see a lot of consistent travel here, but it's like, well, I see this big scat here and it's like, I don't recognize this one because you, you, you walk a property long enough. You can, you can kind of pay attention to mm-hmm. who's, who's dropping what and based off your, based off your research material. And when I walked in there, it's like, it's completely oval like a bell curve and it had protection all the way on it, and it had great wind and then he could look straight out to the field it was it would this year the yep. farmers put in bean field but you're exactly right because it's like and even even had some high growth in it but the way the the owner had cut some of the trees up he trimmed up some of them anywhere between like five to six feet high but still enough in it to to allow growth because he did at once upon a time did have cattle on there but it's like yep. a couple of divorces changed things around so he had to re-strategize his property but he still had the initial breakdown of it all but it's like you're right though it's like I, that's where I've seen most of the most of my beds because like they always have some type of a bell where they have good thick coverage and it's like so it's like it's very very thick. It's like it's it's not easy to get through and the deer don't like going through it unless they have to in a, in a stressful scenario. Correct and. uh that's the whole idea. Now, my point with hinge cutting is is it puts food on the ground at deer level instantly. So really, when I make a recommendation when it comes to a food plot, what's one of the, one of the best food plots I can create on my property in a short period of time, especially in the wintertime, to supplemental feed my deer herd? Well, it's not corn. Corn is not the answer. You introduce corn, you know, you get to the end, you get into late season, after season, anything like that, and you go in and you introduce corn into a deer's diet, you shock their digestive system. They're a four-chambered stomach animal, mm-hmm. and you shock that rumen with that high-energy food source. Subacute acidosis is a real thing where they need browse and roughage in their gut to help stabilize and balance out the pH, especially in their rumen. You, you can kill off deer by feeding them corn. You can because subacute acidosis, I see it in dairy cows a lot on a high green ration. And so one of the best things that you can do to supplemental feed a deer herd in the wintertime, especially like a year like this year where we've had a lot of snow, is simply by hinge cutting, getting mm-hmm. those tops, or even a logging event, getting those tops with those fresh buds down at deer level to chew on. And they will do it. I just did some hinge cutting here 
back at the beginning of February, and within five days, I had deer in those hinge cuttings, like you wouldn't believe, and just about every bud. Now, I'm talking in a silver maple grove, where I, they just devoured it. There isn't a bud left at, you know, a deer level, unless they've got to get on their hind legs and reach for it. But the purpose of hinge cutting and why I'm against these high cuts is if you make that high cut and then new growth around the area where you made your cut, deer can't reach that that high. We want deer lazy. If they don't have to get up on their back back legs to reach food, reach browse, they're not going to do it. They're lazy. We all want things easy. So do deer. So when I make a recommendation of cutting height, I get asked a lot by guys, well, where, you know, how high should I be cutting? Anywhere from knee high to about, I'm six foot three again, about the middle of my sternum. That'll put it about four and a half, five feet. And steer, it'll be at deer level. Now, there's other things, there's other benefits to hinge cutting, especially in bedding areas. It causes that separation of deer family groups within a bedding area, which deer seek out. They want separation. There is such thing as social pressure among deer. That's a laughable topic to many people, but they don't understand it. Mm-hmm. We're trying to reduce the stress on family groups. You, If you've watched deer like I have over the course of the years, and I'm sure you have, mm-hmm. you see them when they're out feeding. They're in competition with every other deer that comes out there. You'll see those old nanny does come out and just kick those competitive deer off. You know, it's... There's a pecking order. Reminds me of this doe that I had that drops twins pretty much every year. And I put a, I put a camera on this one spot where it's like they'd, they would come out from the bedding area. they come out there, but there's no other deer that comes to that area. And then it, not even like 40 yards down the way, that's where Buck beds right there. And it's like I have pictures of him too. And it's like yep. they're, they, they like that space. And I, I get it because like after you said that and they're like thinking back on that experience and watching that because I got a – uh, spy point camera for my, for Christmas for my birthday or no Christmas two years ago and putting it out there is like when I get the cameras come through and it's like I'm seeing these deer all throughout the day and it's like it's perfect shade because it's like it it allows them to come in and graze without having the sun beating down their back and it's like mm-hmm. clockwork and and even when I went out there uh, earlier late fall or, or late summer early fall and like checking the cameras i could walk out that i could pinpoint i could walk out i was like i'm gonna see does here and sure enough i'd see i see the i see the brother see the sisters walking through yep yep and another thing hinge cutting does is it uh it'll screen your movement to and from your stands especially if you're a food plot hunter if deer are out in your food plots especially on an evening hunt and it's one of the reasons i don't recommend ever hunting over a food plot but a lot of guys do you're in your food plot and you're getting deer out to your food plot just before dark. That hinge cutting, if you don't plant a specific screening vegetation, hinge cutting will help you get out of your stand undetected. I don't know how many times in the past that I've gotten out of my stand and spooked every deer off the damn food plot. You know, and it's like, how can I improve this without planting anything in here? What's one of the fastest things I can do? Hinge cutting is a great tool. Again, it's not for every property, but it's tool and toolbox. Improving travel corridors, creating that side cover on a particular travel corridor, making funnels, pinching points, you know, making those pinch points, blockades, blocking off trails. You can strategically steer a deer past your deer stand instead of just random movement, especially if you're hunting a food plot. I see a lot of guys and have had a lot of stories told me, well, I see deer all the time when I'm sitting in a tree stand, but over, overlooking a food plot. Okay, yeah. Well, you know, this one time, it was during a rut, especially when the bucks were in big fighting mode, you know, aggressive and everything else, and establishing their territory. And I was on one end of the food plot, and that buck come out on the other end, and I tried rattling, grunting, doing everything I could to entice him to come down. And he just would not come. And it's like, well... Yeah, probably not because he could see all the way down to the end of the food plot from where all that stuff was going on. Nothing there. There's no need. Hinge cutting or screening of any type can help create those visual barriers where maybe you're in your tree stand high enough, you can see that buck all the way at the end, but he can't see all the way down in the food plot. Now you've piqued his curiosity, but now he's going to waste his time because he's got all that screening and whatever visual that visual barrier to work his way through to come and find you mm-hmm. you've piqued his curiosity and hinge cutting is is one of the ways to do that as well to me there's so many benefits of it 
Again, it's not recommended for every property, but it is a tool in the toolbox. I absolutely love to do it. I have seven years of experience doing it now. I know what trees can do. I've been cutting trees my whole life for firewood. So there's a lot of controversy behind it, but there's a lot of benefit to it as well. Like I wouldn't know how to hinge cut because for me it's like I'm just used to cut the tree down, that's it, and going back through, trim yep. it all up, and stack it up for wood. So it's like for that situation for me, I'll probably reach out for your assistance for that because yep. I'm not sure. It's like I have I've seen enough where like I can predict how to fall and make where it lean where I want it to go, but. Mm-hmm. Going to how far deep I need to go and putting a wedge in there is like that's something that it's like I don't have I haven't seen it enough mm-hmm. to really like because it's, it's I'm like, I'm a doer I like to do it yep. so it's like if, if you're right next to me it's like this is what I want you I want you to go with cut now when you when you said you like going an eight inch to nine diameter how deep do you cut before you stop Great question um, the deepest I'll go is about two thirds to maybe three quarters of the way I don't want to get too much because we're trying to keep that cambium layer intact. And that's where all your xylem and phloem flow through is that cambium layer of a tree. So why don't you dumb that down for us? Because I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. <laughs> so I want to keep as much meat of that cut together on that tree together. So the nutrients, the water, the nutrients that that tree needs to stay alive can flow through that tree. And if you cut too deep, yes, you might save the tree and keep it intact, but you could kink that attachment layer and the nutrients won't be able to flow. Okay. Yep. And that usually that's why I stay with eight inches or smaller for hinge cutting, um, just simply because you get a, such a big tree and such a tall tree, you know, any larger diameter than eight inches, they're generally a lot taller. You've got so much force as they fall that they'll either kink over or they'll bar- barber chair and break off. And Barber chairing is a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. Not it can kick on you, and it can yep. really co- like almost like a widowmaker scenario. Exactly, that's exactly it, and that's why that's the danger of it. And it is, it is, and that's why I don't recommend people just go out and start hinge cutting either on any of the videos that I produce or anything like that. I offer that service. I don't know many loggers that would come out and do it around this area, but there are foresters that will help you if you want to start doing that myself included. I love to do it. My services have been hired for it and the guys are very satisfied. I don't save every tree, but we save quite a few. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, like I said, seven years doing it on my own property. I've got s- trees that are seven years on a hinge cut and I've rehinged them. I rehinged them two years ago and it works great. Fantastic. And after you cut the, the tree two-thirds to three-quarters through, what's the next step after that? Um, usually a wedge is the best option. Or Nick Nation over in Michigan has created a habitat hook. It's called a habitat hook. You can find them at nationscreations.net. They might be a little bit of a sticker shock when you first see what they are and for the price that they are, but it's well worth it. I've had mine. I've got an extendable one. Mm-hmm. It extends up to... Gosh, I want to say 13 or 15 foot long. I can really get some leverage on it, and it keeps the danger factor out where I can keep a lot more meat on the tree as I'm tipping it over, but I can direct that tree also with that tool in the direction I want it to fall. Mm-hmm. Now, no, you, you can't fight tree lean, and I never recommend trying to fight tree lean. That tree's going to go where it wants to go. Mm-hmm. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. But I use a combination of wedges and the habitat hook, again, in combination. You were saying that there is it is a, it is a, a spendy piece of equipment, but mm-hmm. it sounds like it's it's probably worth the money because it sounds like it's, it's got a lot of engineering and it's very strong. It's sturdy. very strong. So very- that's why you buy it. it's gonna it's gonna last you the life of your farm or like the lifetime of you using that material using that thing because like my dad has axes that are older than I am, mm-hmm. and he still he doesn't use them anymore because he's he's sixty five years old. So, but he it's like good if you keep maintaining your equipment, it's gonna last you. A, at least two generations, if Absolutely. not more. Absolutely, as long as you take care of it. Now, I've I've had to replace one because I dropped a tree on it. Just uh. kind of totally forgot about where it was, <laughs> and yeah, unfortunately, the unfortunate happened. And mm-hmm. but it is what it is. To me, it's a it's a valuable tool. So I didn't look at the price of re- when it came time to replace it. And like I said, now I have an extendable version, which is even better. I can get higher on a tree. I'm further away from the tree than when I'm trying to tip it over or anything like that. I can also pull down a smaller tree with it. Say it gets caught up a little bit. I can grab up high with it and pull it down. 
Mm-hmm. I'm talking small trees. I'm talking nothing more than maybe four inches in diameter. That's what I was thinking too when you mentioned that because if you get anything over that, it's going to you're, yeah, yeah, you put you're yourself gonna, in high danger then. Yes, and you, yep. and you risk, risk yourself for injury, and, we do, and it's like you can't do, you can't afford that. No, you can't, and neither can my family. No. My family is very important to me, but it's what keeps me driven as well. What about uh, berries? Like uh, one of the properties yep. I was hunting, they had uh, wild berries on it, raspberries, so they yep. had a nice brush. I found that to be a very nice barrier to work with. Now, Absolutely. do you enjoy that foliage? Yes, it's another food source. I mean, a lot of plans that I put together. I put in there, you know, options to create cover and more food as well. Deer will eat berries. They will. And uh, there's shrubs out there. Red osier dogwood is a great shrub, shrub, a browse species that deer love. And uh, it can tolerate heavy deer pressure. And they're great in low, wet areas as well. Red osier dogwood is. Um, I always recommend, if it's not there already existing on the property, I always recommend a blackberry bush, a raspberry bush, um, autumn olive, if it's already on surrounding properties. It can be an invasive. So if there's none on any surrounding properties, any, you know, if it's not known to be in your area, I won't recommend autumn olive because it is, it has that invasive factor to it, like um, oh, buckthorn. And I know, yeah. I know it. There's, there's, there's some issues with buckthorn out there. I just as soon try to remove it, but it does have benefit to, to deer and wildlife, but foresters definitely don't like it. And yeah, I'm not a fan of it, but I've found that some of the biggest bucks that I've, that I've ever seen that um, on a property used to hunt in southeastern Minnesota and Chatfield, that's where some of our biggest bucks were shot of was in that thick buckbrush um, area there because so, it gives them that protection and it's like any predator is going to come through. It's like they really got to be hungry to get through because it's so thorny yep. and, it's, and it's like it's thick and it intertwines itself. It's it's not gnarly stuff. Yep, yep. Um, f- food is big. I mean, that's usually where I start when I go out to a client property is with food. What food is available here? What's in the surrounding farm fields if I'm in heavy ag country? Um, just what is here available and how can we maximize everything? idea behind a food plot is to set up a smorgasbord because if we're just talking the traditional vegetation that, and popular vegetation that goes into these food plots, you know, whether it be turnips, radishes, clovers, or anything, mm-hmm. I see a lot of clients making the mistake of just planting one certain variety of whatever. The deer come in and hit it, and then they move on and try to find the next, and guys wonder why the deer aren't hitting it anymore. Well, you've hit it at its peak. The deer hit it at its peak nutritional value. It ran out. You either ran ran out of food completely, or it just went beyond its peak nutritional value, and they went on and found something else. So I always, when I'm setting up, say, a food plot design or anything else, a recommendation, I always like to have a mix of things. And it's not just the traditional food plot vegetation either. It comes down to hard mass, producing trees such as acorns, um, walnuts. And the big one, um, trying to think of it now, it's on the tip of my tongue, chestnuts. Oh, chestnut. There we go. I was wondering, because I'm, I'm going through my head, too. It's like, yeah. what other nuts do we have that, that are naturally grown in the in, in upper Midwest here? Yep. Now, right here where I'm located in west central Wisconsin, I'm at about that northern tier of where chestnuts will thrive. You start getting up about Highway 10. I always use kind of Highway 10 as my cutoff as far as chestnut recommendations. Um, just for the, what am I looking for? The latitude, longitude, whatever it is. It'll be longitude now. Yep. So Highway 10, what is that considered like? Is that like up towards Highway 10, Highway 10 towards Eau Claire. It cuts from east to west across the entire state of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so then if you're going from that into Eau Claire, so that'd be Minneapolis south. Yep. Okay, then that, yep. then that continue going forward. That so that as you just just you just make it pretty much draw a line from Minneapolis all the way across right. to to New York, all the way up to Seattle. Yep. Now you know if you can't use chestnuts, there's other options out there. Again, back to what I recommend: apple trees, crab apple trees. Deer just love crab apple trees, and we don't think about that. And when it comes to planting any types of fruit trees, especially apple trees, I always try to recommend at least planting. Th- Three 
different varieties. One that's an early produce, you know, early drop variety, a mid-season drop variety, and one that'll hold its apples well into the late season. Deer love apples. They, yes, they do. They do. Um, it's a great food source, and I always try to recommend them. And now, when it comes to where do I plant these apple trees? Well, if you're in hill country where I am here in west central Wisconsin, I want them up on the hills. And why do I want that? Cold air settles. Mm-hmm. We've gone through plenty of springs, especially in the recent years, where we've had some frost, killing frost, well into the month of May yet. Mm-hmm. Even one year, we had a killing frost in the middle of June. Wow. It was Father's Day in 1992, but I remember that very well. And the apple farmers, we were past, we were well past pollination stage at that time, flowering pollination stage. And those apples made it through. But still, we've just in the recent years, I mean, even I think it was two years ago, we had a killing frost on some of the apple orchards around here. And they lost out that year on their crop. So if you're in hill country, I always recommend them trying to get them and anywhere, try to get them in the highest elevation that you can. Possibly. Yeah, it makes yep. sense because living so close to La- being in La Crosse, we have La Crescent, and La Crescent is the apple capital of Minnesota. That's yep. their biggest claim to fame, but there's a lot of apple orchards through there. And there is – there. It's kind of a variety because it's right in bluff country right there so mm-hmm. that they have them in, in ideal spots. So, But I haven't – heard of anything any uh horrible frost on there but it's like it's as it gets warmer down there it's like having the mississippi there really creates this unique uh biosystem so it, it does. doesn't it really doesn't get as affected like up here it's like we're st- you're climbing elevation and so therefore you're going to you want to get that higher peak which makes sense because it's like coming into your home here it's like you look out to the very top it's like i'd see where i know exactly where to put them at just to make sure that like i can get there and then also like there's ways to get where you can get out there and put a stand there or something like that in the future yep yep um i also run into a lot of properties where they don't have a lot of timber on their property right here in my home I have 17 acres where I live. Deer pass through here, but there's no cover here on my property. It's old, open pasture. It's very wide open. What can I do to at least slow deer down as they move through here? I have a big woods on the east side of my property and the west side, and the deer funnel through our property. But what can I do to hold them down besides just planting food plots? Switchgrass is a great Thermal cover for deer. Deer love switchgrass. It uh, takes a couple years to get it established and get it where where you want to be. It takes some maintenance. It can be very hard to establish. Frost seeding is a great way to seed and establish the plant, but it requires some maintenance. It does have a little bit more of an expensive upfront cost, but the benefits over the years that return on your investment. So many people look at upfront sticker shock. Well, what's it worth to you? And it's got more standability than, say, um, a big blue stem or an Indian grass, anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, a perfect example of a great switchgrass area planting that I see if you're traveling I-94 through west central Wisconsin, like I do quite a bit. There is about a 10-acre field, for any of you local listeners, there's a 10-acre field just south of the first Eau Claire exit if you're traveling north from the south. Last winter, we had two or three major heavy snow events, especially right at the end of February here. Yeah, because last year we had uh, 39 inches in February, and this year, nowhere close to that. I think, we, close. I think we probably hit maybe 12 feet, 12 inches, and that's about it. Yep. It's like, it's a talk about a big nine-day difference right there between the two of them. Absolutely. But with those big snow events last year, we even had a wet, heavy snow event right during our gun deer season here last year. Yeah, we did. Or this past season here in Wisconsin. And uh, it took a lot of trees down, everything else. But you go past that field, it's resilient. It's still standing. We're here on my property. Any grass that's out there, it's completely flat, flattened by snow. There's no cover out there. There's no habitat for pheasants or rabbits, any ground dwelling. That's animal what like I that. noticed. Like driving all the way up yep. here and coming through, there, it's like it's beautiful country for for whitetail and elk and uh, and for coyotes stuff like that. But when I'm looking through, I saw zero cottontails. I saw no pheasants. Saw no rough grouse. It's like 
what's going on up here, guys? It's like we got it, and then like, and I see a lot of old growth in here too. And then like coming up fifty three, it's like I could see a lot of potentials, like somebody coming through there and cutting down some trees and getting hell of the BLM. And like, what can we do to rejuvenate this here? Because even some around the uh, the creek beds there, it's like there's no coverage there there's for them no to hide. Cover. Where it's like I, my, where I used to hunt in, in northern Iowa, it's like those are those are prime hunting areas of the creek because then you get they have the nice build up there. You have some uh, spruce or uh, sagebrush or they would have juniper and like they could create that um that, that sanctuary for white tail and stuff like that yep. and, and cottontail and all that fun stuff yep again when it comes to creating cover for deer and all wildlife there's so many options out there no matter if you've got a big old growth forest if you've got a wide open field pasture whatever there's things that can be done to help improve and hold attract and hold more deer on your property i just got done with a client property out in the Spring Valley, Minnesota area. Oh, I know exactly. I know you're there. So, like, yep. you, you hunt. You were right where I used to hunt at. So yep. it's like you I, know that you know that terrain. I do. And you mentioned Chatfield earlier. I just went through there the other day. Guys, yeah. isn't it beautiful down there? It and is. The trout streams over there are just fantastic. That's what it's known for. But it's, it's nobody knows about it. It's like a nice little it. hidden gem. And I don't have that many listeners, so I can tell people about it. So it's like it's, <laughs> it's if you have a chance to get over to Chatfield, Minnesota, there, folks, it is absolutely gorgeous. But if you get there in, in the month of May, you'll just you'll have a heyday with, especially here in in Wisconsin. There's a lot of different opportunities for trout fishing here. But it's very technical, though. You got to be very accurate with your stamps, the stamps you get or the license you get from. Because mm-hmm. I would not want to have a com- conversation like you. You have this stamp for this one, but not for this one. Because yep. when I was looking through, because I, I have a friend of mine that's a diehard trout fisherman. Man, that meat is delicious. I can see why people get after it. And it is a very technical thing because you want to be exactly, you want to be right where you're going to be. Or you need to have the right license for where you're going to be at. Because some certain, certain creeks don't open up until um, some until late May into early June. So mm-hmm. you don't want to be caught in a situation. Right, right. And uh, But yeah, that property set up, it had a... Sp- probably five or six acres of woods on the very east end of the property and it was old crp the gentleman had actually started doing some planting were in areas that weren't crp yet and uh we were wondering what we could do to attract and hold more deer you know southeast minnesota like i do and it can be flat and really open but then you can get in those valleys where a lot of those trout nice trout streams are you know that it's kind of rolling there is more cover but this gentleman five acres of woods is all he had the rest was all open crp you know old farm fields Mm -hmm. and there were switchgrass recommendations you know and that's the other thing too when it comes to crp is do you really want to get into a program such as crp now it has a great return there's no question about it you can make more off of enrolling your property into crp program than you could renting out the farm farmland to a farmer, especially right now in the agricultural economy, you know. Because some places go anywhere between $115 an acre all up to over $300 mm-hmm. an acre, depending on where you're at for the prime land. Absolutely, absolutely. But just going back to the where the agricultural economy is right now, and it's the way it's hurting, a lot of landowners aren't getting their rent. So CRP is an option where it's going to be a guaranteed payment. But at the same time, you could be limiting yourself to what you could do. Yes, you know, you want that diversity of having different areas and fawning opportunities in the springtime. Mm -hmm. You know, deer love like a pollinator type of area to be in wildflowers, forbs, anything like that for cover, food. But you go buy most of these areas that are set up or enrolled in a CRP program. If you're in a heavy snow area this time of year, they're flat. Mm-hmm. There is no grass poking through the snow whatsoever. And uh, we're switchgrass. Now, I think with some CRP programs, depending which state you're in, I'm not really up to snuff on it yet. It's something that's new to me, but I am learning more about it. Switchgrass is the greatest alternative there is to promote more bedding, thermal cover, and just for screening. Mm-hmm. Screening your access to your stands. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that switchgrass idea. And we're getting into the point of, or that time of year now, too, where frost seeding is going to start coming, whether you're frost seeding clovers into your existing clover patches, whatever you're doing, and switchgrass. 
Now you you work you work with a specific brand similar with uh, Mike and those guys with uh, Life Out There. What what is that brand again? Um, their brand is Domain Outdoors. Okay. Yep. Um, great company. Mike Lindall again. Um, very close family friend. Mm-hmm. His entire family has been friends of my family for pushing fifty years now. Yeah. Mike's been on the podcast. He was a fantastic guy. I talked yep. to. I pushed his like he's actually getting some really good. Uh, 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 downloads from from when we released the episode here just a few months ago, yeah. and it was very pleasant to talk to him. And then his friend, uh, uh, what's his, he just Tim had a kid? Well, Mike Lindahl just had yeah their their kid, and, and c- congratulations on that, Mike. Yes. If you're listening to this podcast, um, Tim Schutz is his partner. There we go. Yep, and then his other partner for life out there is Luke Thompson. There we go. And Luke just had his, a baby girl too, as well. Yeah, not too long ago. I think yeah. I think about a year ago now, but yes. still. Yeah, so the, the, he's getting. But he's he's a very busy man for himself because yes, he's because he he, he's involved with the outdoor industry. He travels to all the ch- trade shows and stuff like yes. that. And right right now, it's like he's everywhere in the, in the United States. So it's like I've been trying to get him sit down at the podcast with him for a minute, but it's like you know I am not in any rush. It's like he's a very busy man. So it's like one day will will happen. Yep, it will. So now, tell me about the seed. Like, what makes this seed so efficient? I think um, they've got it down. So it's specific. It's it's more in the upper Midwest right now. Domain the domain outdoors name is, and uh, I think their seed selection. They select it according to where we are geographically in the United States, being we're in a more northern climate. Just the hardiness of it. It'll grow anywhere, but um, it's like it's like a farmer selecting a variety of seed corn. He's not going to plant the same variety of seed corn here in the state of Wisconsin as they would down somewhere, say, Kansas or Texas, mm-hmm. anything like that. It all depends on growing degree units. Um, I'm not saying that about the outdoor food plot seed business at all. But again, we're trying, you know, um, frigid forage. They promote a lot of their seed to being specific to our geographical area here mm-hmm. in the northern climates. I've noticed that uh, the more the, the ones that are more uh, experienced in this and have a good history, when you go to their website, they actually have you fill out an, a drop down menu to tell you, like, well, this is where I'm living in Iowa and this is where I'm living at in Kansas, and like this way, then they can have an idea of what type of soil you're going to deal with. Because you get down towards yep. Sparta, it's a very sandy soil, and if you get up here, it's very is it, is it more um, top soil or clay based? Make sure. Um, it, it depends. I mean, um, you get down in the Black River Falls, Hickston area, especially where I'm originally from, we deal with a lot of sand. But then we get start getting into the hills and everything. Now we can deal with a little bit more clay. I mean, right here where I live, I deal with a heavy clay soil where I'm at here. Mm-hmm. Um, but we get down right here, specifically at my house, it's a little lower in elevation. Now I've got sand down here around my house. So... Um, yeah, you always want to be consider- considerate of your soil types when it comes to seed selection and reach out to the people that you're buying your seed from. And it doesn't matter what seed you use. Everybody pushes their seed company. They do and why it's better. And that's all great, fine and dandy. They're all wonderful. It's I push no specific brand when I'm pushing seed, but I do use it specific mm-hmm. brands in my business. Makes sense because this way, because you, like you said, you're traveling out to Vermont, Kentucky, completely different. So this way, then you have that. And the best part is, is that when you talk to somebody's customer service, they can always provide you a reference. It's like, hey, such and such, three counties over use this, and they have similar. To talk to him, see what. You, and then this way, then you they can have that uh, referral, that recommendation. Like this is what uh, like the the texture of land I'm using and everything that's involved with it, and why I use it. So I think that's a value valued thing if you get in touch with their customer service and Absolutely. talk to somebody before you make a large investment because you don't want to you don't want to drop two hundred dollars on five acres of land and it's like all of a sudden it's three hundred dollars whatever it is and it's not the right mixture and it just fails on you and it's like ouch yep now I, what we were talking about this before we hit record button why do why is there still a lot of standing corn around here in Wisconsin do you have any idea about that well I think a lot of it has to do with the growing season we had in two thousand nineteen um, a lot of late planted crops. Not just corn, soybeans as well. I mean, I've got a neighbor here that's still got 20 acres of soybeans still out there. A lot of crops didn't get planted until June. We had a very wet spring last year. Mm -hmm. We had a wet harvest season this year as well. I mean, guys were trying to 
it's it's very hilly around here, mm-hmm. and guys were having a hard time this fall just harvesting. You know, sliding their combines down. So the that's hills. essentially what it came down to sure. was the 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 soil was yep. just too unsecure for, especially when you're dealing with a, a half a million dollar piece of machinery. Right. That and it was a couple of things. It was it was that factor right there, and the crop just didn't mature and dry down either. Oh, so okay. A lot of those fields are still standing just because. They were at the time of traditional harvest. They were probably still running thirty percent moisture, and with the price that it costs to take it to a mill to have it dried down, price, you know, the price of fuel delivery, all that. It ta- I can't remember how many gallons it takes, or how many bushels per gallon of fuel it takes to dry down, and then the, you figure in your moisture content. What it takes per point of moisture content in a crop to dry it down, and it just wasn't justifiable this year for a lot of farmers. It makes sense. And then now you talked about corn and how it can shock a deer system. Now, when does deer? When do deer start eating corn throughout the season in, in the summer? Well, they'll start. And why would they? Why would they start including that in their diet at that point in time? Do you know? Well, I think it's it's a high energy food source for one that they are seeking out. But deer will hit, they'll hit corn any time of the growing season from the time it pops out of the ground, you know, they're getting that vegetation. Um, maybe not as heavily as they will once an ear is set. Um, it comes down to sugar content. Field corn can be the same as sweet corn at a certain time during the growing season where the sugar content is highest. But corn is usually the most abundant food source there is. And it's got that high energy content that deer seek as you get later into the hunting season and throughout the rest of the winter, especially here in the northern climates where it gets cold. And I mean, we can get 30, 40, even whatever below zero. Yeah. We've been very lucky that this, this year has been kind of weird. It seems like every Thursday we'd be dropping blow and we start at negative 16 and then we work our way up. Yep. And it's been a very kind of warm winter for us. And it's, and it's, I think we're going to, we're going to probably see a very good year again. Not kind of sure what's going to happen with the CWD, but as of asked this question, mostly about CWD, it's like most, most hunters that have been doing this for a minute, they just say it's, it's something it's naturally occurring. And then they, a lot of them believe that it's a anti hunters technique to get the, get people to create the mass hysteria to try to drive people from hunting. So it's like, it's it's a very, I don't know, it's very different. It's like, and so far at this time, as we're both aware, it has, there's no confirmed cases transferring from human or from from whitetail to a human. Because it's in elk and it's it's in uh, moose too, but it, moose doesn't happen very often from what I understand. And if right. it does, it tends to be aggressive and tends to kill them quite, quite quickly. Yep. Um, and I agree with you. 100% on the CWD issue. It's a, it's a scare tactic when they do find it somewhere and mass eradication of deer like they tried doing in southern Wisconsin when they first discovered it in 2002. It's not the answer. And I think that being that heavy cull rate that they wanted, I think it scared a lot of people away from the sport of hunting. I think so too, because it's like 10 years ago, we've between, between 10 years, years ago and then to this last season, mm-hmm. we've lost 4 million hunters country, nationwide. Yep. And so it's been quite a difficult aspect of it. At least like we have uh, Randy Newberg, uh, the hunting public have at least started showing people how to get into like utilizing public land hunting. I know where to hunt podcast. They do a lot, all their hunting is on land. I know Brian Austin from get, get um, from um, Beast Mode Challenge, he does a lot of public land. He was actually out there this weekend out there hunting mm-hmm. with, with uh, Johnny Dove, Johnny Love. So those guys are just fantastic people. They've both been on my podcast. So great, great, great guys to actually listen to. But I, I, it's 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 a difficult thing. And it's like right now, um, I think they're we're working towards the three R's: you know, recruit, retain, and such like that. And I think right now it's like our, our focus is not going towards the twelve-year-olds, but looking at the twenty-five-year-olds getting out of college. Because I know for myself, I didn't start hunting again until after I turned twenty-five, twenty-six. Mm-hmm. So there was a there was a solid four or five years, or no, it was, no, actually it was longer than that because I was in Arizona from two thousand three to two thousand nine, and during that whole entire time I didn't hunt, I didn't fish at all. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now looking back on if I was if I was smart, I would have went and bought myself a lifetime license. So this way, then I'd get at least and be and be set. You know, right, right. Yeah, we're losing hunters at an incredible rate. We're not introducing enough hunters into this. I mean, I don't. 
what do we have in the state of Wisconsin alone? And it all comes down from, you know, non-resident hunters to resident hunters. But, I mean, unfortunately, the younger generations, you know, they see what they see on TV. PETA's got a hell of a grip across all the agriculture, hunting industry, everything. And the sad thing is with PETA, they're gaining ground. And I could go on and on all day about PETA, but I'm not going to get into that on this podcast. Yeah. So. Uh, Chad and I got into it the last podcast, and we, he was telling me that he he got he he had a conversation with a DNR agent, and he was explaining to me that PETA is throwing a lot of money trying to eliminate that position because they believe that we will we will uh, implode on ourselves mm-hmm. without having that management there, and then on top of that, too, trying to pull away a lot of the. Th- the giving like misinterview or miscommunication about how many positions are out there. And so I went on there, I went on to Indeed. There is over a hundred and some position nationwide that they're looking to fill. And some of the positions pay really, really well. I mean, if you've done your time, there's some positions that pay over six figures. Yeah. And that's astounding. So it's like, don't shy away from their folks. Like if you have an opportunity, you're really passionate about it, do it. Cause like they like uh, guys that are hunters cause they appreciate it, you know? And like, yeah. and when we, when we got people writing our bills here, like a lot of them are, are very anti hunters, you know, or, or they, they only like one aspect of it and we're trying to reevaluate how to change everything you know and the funny thing is too it's like uh, i was listening to rainy like rainy newberg and uh sam soholt and it's like some of the highest viewed content the ones that are all grayed out because it's like they want to look at what why is it censored type scenario yep absolutely and you know PETA they degrade hunters as not conservationists either we're the greatest conservationists there is along with any you know along with farmers as well. Mm-hmm. We're the greatest conservationists there is. But in my perspective, PETA thinks that animals have the same creative mental faculties as a human being. They're capable of critical thinking just like a human being. Oh, Jesus. And what have these guys been smoking? I know. Seriously. It. Absolutely. And it's just simply not true. Mm-hmm. And we absolutely stop hunting, stop animal agriculture, bring it to a halt. There's going to be absolute chaos. You know, and really the Bible says, talks about the darkest times, and I believe we're getting to that point, but that's a whole nother topic that we could go on and on about. Oh, that's, isn't that the truth? You know, and it's like ever since the Pittman Robertson Act established in, in 1934, I mean, those guys back then had hope when B, B and C started and such, and now it's like, the, due to those, because uh, it's like any ammunition, any type, any form of firearm, and then archery equipment, like the the bow and the arrow, nothing else. Which I wish there would be taxes on, like the releases and the quivers and all other fun stuff, because I think it did deserve to be part of that package. Mm-hmm. That brings in almost three hundred and eighty million annually, and we and we get an, an uh, anti gun person in office like Obama was. That was five hundred some odd million annually. It's like it really cr- increased the, the that dollar amount to really reinvest and then. I was really for those who are looking at building habitat. Also, look into the Farm Bill of 2018 because there's a lot of programs out there that can really help you get yourself into a situation. Because right now, like in Iowa, they want to put land, they want to put water back into the land because they want to get they want the water to be deep in the land. And then we've over the last hundred years, they spent a lot of time trying to get the water out, and now they've had issues with the Black Marsh and several places down in Des Moines, and uh, they're trying to build buffers and trying to do that because I guess uh, Des Moines has the world's largest nitrogen filtration system and it costs millions of dollars a year to run to to spread that water, drinking water out across the world and they, they just started suing people suing, suing different counties and well then the government guys like can't be doing that now and so they've they've that's why they're trying to introduce this to create that buffer zone between all that so this way then that that runoff doesn't go in there and get in the soot so like because it's like we're having issues and then Getting down, even down into Florida, with their worth the red tide, and it's like you're seeing people spray this chemical on animal, and it's like it's not the right image we need to be having down there, in Florida. But they've done a really, they like there's a there's a couple of different programs out there. But like I said, folks, look at that vo- that bill, and also look at the USDA's uh, website too for different things. And you can Google that stuff, and it's like it is a very powerful resource, especially like kids. If you guys don't want to farm, but you want to keep that land out there, you guys can still get paid on that. I'm not up to snuff on the new farm bill that's come out, but it's a very um, it's a massive bill. Yep, and I look forward to looking at it. I yeah, know you've sent me essentially the material. Out. I'd okay. say I haven't. No, nobody's really like I was hoping that back hunters, countries, and anglers would actually have a chance to like go through it. Like this is how we could help out, and this is what we can do, mm-hmm. and such. So, 
I know here in Wisconsin and Minnesota and Iowa that the chapters are doing their best to combat um, trying to get back some of the EPA regulations and such. So it's like it's been a kind of an uphill battle with like what with the, some of the, gain, the the ground they've gained they've lost due to different regulations being deregulated. All right, then. So we came at right exactly the amount. Is there anything else that you want to have the listeners think about as the snow starts thawing? Well, if you have any questions on what you can do to improve your properties, you can find me on social media. I'm active on Facebook at Epic Whitetail Habitat LLC. I'm active on Instagram at Epic Whitetail Habitat. And you can visit my website at www.epicwhitetailhabitat.com. Fantastic. Thank you, guys. This, this podcast will be out here shortly. Uh, thank you again for tuning in. Um, the sponsor of this podcast is RPG Coffee, based out of Minnesota and Boston. It's Their RPG stands for Real People Giving. It's all veteran-owned and operated. Uh, listen to the American Sheepdog Podcast with uh, Chris Campazelli. Fantastic man. It, he sets down and talks about the whole entire thing. But uh, if you have any questions or anything like that, like I said, you can even reach out to me on social media. I'm on all platforms. Please go down to iTunes and rate and review. And if you if you like it, don't like it, whatever, I appreciate the criticism, but at least be constructive. Anyways, folks, go out there and enjoy those what God gave us.